We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated them and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, uh, we come to you and we pray for wisdom and we pray for softness of heart. We pray for understanding. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word and all its rich and uh, varied insight into our lives. And uh, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to lie. Uh, This is a very challenging story. But that's kind of the point. Because parables are actually meant to challenge us. Uh, They're they're designed to blow up our preconceptions of God and how the world works. And they do this in order to change us. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. And the story we're looking at this morning is a story about a nobleman going on a journey to receive a kingdom. And there's actually two threads to this story. And they're closely intertwined. One thread involves the actions of this nobleman's servants to whom he has entrusted a task to do his business while he's away. But the other thread involves some citizens who hate him and say, we do not want this man to reign over us. And as we can see from verse 27, those citizens come to a horrifying end. Now, I want to speak to this second thread up front. 
because it's deeply unsettling and it's meant to be. I think many of us cringe at the picture of verse 27. Uh, The uncomfortable language occurs at the level of the parable. It's not necessarily a literal portrayal, but it is meant to shock us. Rejecting the king is a very serious thing. And I want to say a few words about this. I think many of us, we only want to hear about a God who saves. We don't want to hear about a God who judges. We want to hear about grace. We want to hear about love and forgiveness. But the business of judgment, you know, leave that to the fundamentalists. But the prophets, the apostles, Jesus himself tell us that God is a God of judgment. Because the kingdom only comes by putting an end to all evil. Now, some of us, I don't think, have have thought deeply enough about this. But it's interesting that even people who are not Christians have given deep thought to the subject of judgment. One example is uh, Vince Gilligan, the author of Breaking Bad, that marvelous show uh, that if you haven't watched, well, I can't recommend things because then people have different sensibilities about stuff. But anyways, Vince Gilligan, Breaking Bad is a show about a high school chemistry teacher who's diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he turns into a crystal meth dealer because he's a chemist, right, in order to make money for his family. But this becomes all-consuming for him. And the story is really about the evolution of evil in a human being. And he takes this high school chemistry teacher who, by all accounts, is a good guy, and he turns him into an Al Capone. And in an interview with Vince Gilligan, the author of Breaking Bad, uh, he, he's asked about this idea of turning someone into an evil person and what fascinates him about that. And he said, you know, my girlfriend has a great line that I always quote. She says, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven. But I don't know that I can stand the thought that there's no hell. Because where is Hitler then? Where is Pol Pot? There's got to be some kind of payback. We tend to want to believe that there is. I've got to believe that there's some kind of karma, some kind of payback. I've got to believe the wheel turns for everybody that does truly horrible deeds. When it comes to questions of spirituality, I'd like to believe that there is more than just us in the universe. I can't prove it to be true. I don't know that it's true, but I'd like to believe it because the alternative is we are left with each person, man or woman, left to their own philosophy and code of ethics. You see, what Vince Gilligan is grappling with is the desire for some sort of judgment, some sort of evaluation, some sort of reckoning that sorts this out. But of course, we all want that for someone else, not for ourselves. And here's what we need to wrestle with about the God of the Bible, is that he cares deeply about the world he has made. And he cares deeply about what evil and sin have done to it. And he promises that he will undo it all when Jesus returns, and he will undo all who reject Jesus' kingship. The king will defeat his enemies He makes a final end of traitors to his kingdom. But, and listen carefully, if you think the point of this story, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, is you better behave or God's going to get you, you will completely misunderstand why why Jesus tells this story. And in fact, you will fall into the error that the third servant in this story falls into. 
So why does Jesus tell us this story? What is it all about? What is he trying to convey to his disciples and the other, other hearers? And I want to look at three things this morning. Three things that will help us kind of find our way uh, through this story. The first is that the Christian life is a time of waiting. This is how the story begins. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So the opening line of the story sets the table for what follows. And it situates our lives between a departure and a return. And in between, there is waiting. Now, I think this is really important for every one of us this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian most of your life or you're new to the Christian faith and you're just checking it out. You, you need to understand this if you're going to understand Jesus in the heart of Christianity. This is the last parable that Jesus tells before he enters Jerusalem. And Luke actually tells us why he told this parable. Thank you, Luke. Verse 11, he told this because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here's Jesus on the brink of entering into Jerusalem. This is where everything's been headed since Luke chapter 9, verse 52. And they're like, it's about to arrive. It's going gonna, it's gonna to show up immediately. And see, the kingdom of God is something the people of Israel had been waiting for. And it's not like you, not like you and I wait for things, you know, for a week, you know, or for nine months uh, or for a year. They had been waiting for over a thousand years. They were waiting for all the promises that God made to Abraham to come true. A beautiful land filled with a multitude of people who would be blessed and be a blessing to the whole world. They were waiting for everything to be made right. And when Jesus stepped onto the scene and he's performing these miracles and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God is here, people were saying, this is the one. This is the one God promised. This is the one through whom God was going to make everything right. So you can't possibly overemphasize the anticipation that they were feeling. But Jesus needs to tell them something. He says, there's going to be a delay between my arrival in Jerusalem and the full arrival of the kingdom. So he tells them a story, this parable. And the form of the story would have been familiar to those first century listeners. Uh, see, in that, those days, local governors would go to the emperor to receive ratification of a kingship. They would become regional king. And this happened with Herod the Great. This happened more recently in Jesus' day with uh, Archelaus, Herod the Great's son. And in the case of Archelaus, there was actually a party of people who went with him to see the emperor to oppose him. Say, we don't want this guy reigning over us. Now, Jesus isn't comparing himself to Archelaus. I mean, by all accounts, Archelaus was a pretty lousy guy. But what he's doing is he's utilizing this commonly known practice to help his disciples understand what is about to take place. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the future. And he's preparing us as well. And this is what we need to understand. We live life in between. In between Jesus' departure and Jesus' return. And in between, there is waiting. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for the full manifestation of his rule and reign. 
We're waiting for the full realization of his kingdom. The Christian life, make, make no mistake, is a life of waiting. But this is the second thing that we need to see. In the waiting, there is work to be done. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So here you have this master distributing his wealth to his servants and telling them to conduct his business while he is away. He's entrusting them with a task. He's giving them a job to do with what has been given to them. And so we have to ask the question, what what do the minas represent? Now, some of you are going to go on Google today, and you're going to look this up, and minas and drachmas and talents and all this kind of stuff, and then you're going to discover that I'm probably not pronouncing mina correctly. And I just want you to know, I know, but I can't shake it. It's how I heard it. So a mina is roughly three months of wages. So it's not an exorbitant sum, uh, but it's something. And some, some people think because there's a similar story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew called the parable of the talents, that what Jesus is referring to is our special gifts and talents. And these two stories are actually different enough that it seems Jesus is using this story form on two different occasions for two different purposes. So coming at this and looking at these minds and saying, these are the things that make us special. We're called to do something special with the specialness that God has given us. And I just want to say that's a very Stanford-y way of looking at things. Like we think it's our intelligence, it's our charm, it's our Ivy League education. But I don't think that's right at all. For one thing, every servant gets the same thing, one mina. And besides, these disciples were not the talented and privileged of the first century. They were fishermen and despise tax collectors. These weren't special people by anyone's standards. Now, the master is giving them something and calling them to conduct his business. So you have to ask, what is his business? And this is what's interesting. Jesus is saying these things on the heels of the story we looked at last week, the story of Zacchaeus. He's probably still in Zacchaeus' house. Because notice verse 11, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. What did they just hear? You know what they heard? They heard Jesus describing his mission, which is to seek and to save the lost. So look at the ministry of Jesus. What was he about? He forgave sinners. He welcomed outcasts. He fed the hungry. Because he came to seek and save the lost. And now he's entrusting his business to his servants while he's away. If you look ahead in the story, you'll see that after Jesus' death and resurrection, his death in Jerusalem and his resurrection from the dead, he gives his disciples the ministry of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all the nations. That's Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that he commissioned them, his disciples, to go and make more disciples out of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Or look at the beginning of of the book of Acts, the story of the early church. Jesus sends out his disciples as witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth, all the way to the ends of the earth. 
You know what the business of God's people is? It's the business of the kingdom. It's extending the master's grace. As one person put it, Jesus' people respond to his grace by becoming his grace to the world. That's the family business. And the family business involves using everything you have for the mission of proclaiming God's kingdom. We do it in word, we do it in deed. We do it in our work, we do it in our family. We do it in our neighborhood, we do it in our friendships. We sow the good news of the kingdom anywhere and everywhere because we're servants of the king and the king has entrusted us with his business. You see, there's a waiting, but while we wait, there is work to be done. What kind of work are we talking about here? You know, it's only limited by our imagination. I look at our congregation and there are people in this, in this congregation who are teaching prisoners the Bible in Greek and Hebrew at San Quentin Prison. There are people who show up to feed the homeless with Street Life Ministries. There are people who make meals for a widow or a widower. There are people who are building relationships with coworkers to talk to them about the good news of Jesus. Right? On and on and on we could go, but that is the business that the master has entrusted to his servants. There is a time of waiting. All of Christian life is waiting for the full manifestation of his reign. But in the waiting, we're not passive. We are active about the king's business. And then here's the third thing about this story. The end of the waiting, there is a reckoning. Those who reject his reign will be judged. We talked about that up front. But what about those who profess to receive it? Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they gained by doing business. So the king returns, and he wants to know what his servants have done with what has been entrusted to them. And there's three servants that are called forth, just to give us a sample here. Right? And the first two really tell us something astonishing about this king that we may miss. And that is this king richly rewards. The first servant is called forth and he said, what have you gained with what I have given you? And he said, your one mana has turned into 10. And this king says, you're going to rule over 10 cities. Okay? The second servant, he said, your one mana has turned into five. He's like, five cities for you. Right? This is crazy reward. You you don't have to have an MBA from Stanford to do this calculation. The reward is completely out of proportion to the return. This is the profound, extravagant generosity of the king. That he delights to do this. But the king also exposes faithless hearts. Because we get the third servant, when called to account, says, Here's your mina. I hid it in a napkin. This man is our warning. And he's a warning not just because it was unfruitful or unproductive, but because of what he says about the king. He says he hid it because he was afraid. He knew the master was harsh and severe and exacting, and he took what wasn't his, and he reaped where he hadn't sown. And you have to ask yourself, Is that the picture we get of the master by the way he responded to the first two servants? Not at all. This man fails to see the heart of the king right in front of him. 
he is suspicious of his goodness. Look, we could do a whole sermon series on that phrase. Because at the heart of sin is suspicion of God's goodness. We talked about it in the confession this morning. Did God really say, isn't he holding out on you? Is God really good? Does he really care? Can God be trusted? Right? This is the mojo of sin inside of us. And many of us think this story is told to get us to recognize how hard God is and fear, but it's exactly the opposite. Thinking God is severe paralyzes us. And the master in the parable says, you are condemned by your own words. Do you know what the greatest barrier to serving the world in the king's business is? It's not our lack of discipline. It's not our lack of effort. It's, it's not even not knowing what to do. Because, I mean, let's be honest. Most of the time we don't know what we're doing or what to be doing. No, the greatest barrier is distrusting the goodness of God. You see, what Jesus is portraying here is not salvation by works. Right? The, the way the, the servants who were productive describe it is like, your, your mina has, has produced this. There's like a, it's not like I was pretty savvy with what you gave me and uh, being the smart Silicon Valley chap that I am. No, they're like, I invested what you entrusted to me and it went to work. This isn't salvation by works. This is living by faith. Taking the king at his word and going and putting to work in the world what he has entrusted to you. And you know, I, this is interesting. If this is the character of the king and this is what life in his kingdom will be like in the end, here's something that we can't forget. is in the time in between, the king loves to generously pour out his grace on us again and again and again and multiply it as we use it. As one person put it, when you go out into the world offering the grace of God, you experience his grace more richly. The more you conduct the king's business, the fuller experience you get of the king's love and favor. Haven't you found that to be true in your own life? When you go out trying to give yourself away in service to the king, you find yourself praying more, desperate, hungry, For more grace, and what does he do? He gives it to you over and over and over again. That is life in the kingdom. And in the end, the rich, extraordinary reward is more than you could possibly imagine and way out of accord with anything that you've ever done. But the opposite is also true. The one who distrusted the master didn't just fail to produce with what had been given to him. He lost everything. All was taken away. Friends, this is sobering for us because it's really pressing upon our lives is, do you trust the king and will you put to work what he has given to you? That grace that you have received, that grace is meant to be extended. And guess what happens when you find yourself overextended and running dry? He gives more grace. He gives more grace because he's a generous king. But I want to end with this. How does Jesus receive the ratification of his kingship? He says he's going away and then he will return. But pretty soon in the gospel of Luke, we're going to discover he receives the ratification of his kingship 
through death and resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is his coronation. The crucifixion is his rejection, but the resurrection is his coronation. And Jesus says, God says, Jesus is the world's true king. This is the last story that Jesus tells before he enters Jerusalem. We'll see another story next week that he also talks about judgment when he's, when he's in Jerusalem. But what does Jesus do in Jerusalem? Well, there he offers himself as a sacrifice for the evil that we brought into the world, sparing us the wrath of God by enduring it on our behalf. Look, God is the God who saves, but he's also the God who judges. And the judgment of God and the salvation of God meet at the cross. And the great surprise was this, that Jesus, the true king, was slaughtered like a lamb for you and for me and for all who call call on him in faith. And then he calls you into mission. God calls you to use all of your life in service of the kingdom. He's spoken the story of Jesus to you. The story of his love, the story of his forgiveness, the story of his kindness, the story of his cross. He's told you of the resurrection life. He's held up before your eyes the beauty of new creation when the kingdom fully comes and all of it is by grace. And he's saying, I will know that you are mine by what you do with that grace. Do you receive and believe or you distrust and hide it away? This is the story that we're called to live by and we say it every Sunday. We say it in the liturgy of communion. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. What are we saying? We live life in between. In between the death and resurrection of Jesus and his return. And we are waiting the full manifestation, the full experience of the peace and the joy and the love and the forgiveness that we have tasted. But while we wait, there's work to be done. And Jesus has equipped us for this work. His grace And as people who've received his grace, we extend that grace into the world. What will you do with his grace? Put it to work or hide it in a napkin? So that's the question that Jesus wants us to ask ourselves. And the final thing I want to leave you with is this, is what kingdom is actually good enough for investing all of your labors in? Because you see, you're going to be working at building a kingdom, no matter what. It's inescapable. And if you say, I don't want you, Jesus, reigning over me, you're either going to have someone or something else reigning over you, or you're just going to be busy, busy, busy building your own kingdom. And at the end, it leads to loss, the loss of everything. But all along the way, there are those moments of frustration and emptiness that are signs and signals that we need the king, the true king, Jesus, to rule and reign over us because he's the one who will make everything right. And he has demonstrated this in his death and his resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hard parts, the challenging parts, uh, the parts that unsettle, Lord, because uh, we are people who need to have our loves and our loyalties reordered. We need your grace. So Lord, fill us with your grace that we might Go out and extend that grace to the world and receive even more grace, Lord, as we extend it and as we find ourselves coming to the end of ourselves again and again and again. We thank you, Jesus, that you're a good and generous king, that you give reward way out of proportion to anything that is deserved. 
And that what you offer to us freely in your death and resurrection is ours for the taking. So Lord, work faith in us, work loyalty and love in us, work obedience in us, that we might be your people, that we might be your hands and feet in the world, participating in your mission to seek and save the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.